so many people hate their own response to the following question. So what does your company actually do? Because in this moment, my friend, you have three options, okay? Number one, pitch slap your prospect. Number two, fumble your way through a long-winded response. And number three, deliver a punchy elevator story that sparks intrigue. Now, if you're nodding your head at number three, but you're like, hold up, I don't even know where to begin, then hey, don't worry. I've got your back. All right, head on down to www.theraviregiani.com forward slash your elevator story to unlock your very own free elevator story script, template, and guide. Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, let's get into it. A ship is safe in harbour, but that's not what ships are built for. Now, those are the exact words that are on Kyle Peterson's LinkedIn profile. And I know that he's a dude who believes in the power of taking risks. Let me tell you why, man. From enrolling in the US Navy back in 2005, he spent around four years as an electronics and computer systems technician until he said, you know what? This ship needs to get off the harbor and start floating in some choppy waters. You know what I'm saying? So that led him to a sales role at companies such as ADP, Catalyst Software, and Gusto. And today, the man looking down the lens of the camera is currently the VP of sales over at Dandy, and he's a sales leader who's scaling his team. So I thought, you know what? Let's pin him down. Let's pin him down to talk about something super timely right now. And let's see what Kyle's view is on the five key attributes that every seller needs to embody to truly land their next role, even in a recession. Dude, welcome to the show. What's good? Hey, Ravi. Good to see you, man. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, man. It's, uh, I feel like it's been a long time coming. I feel like I knew you before we've even got on a virtual call before, because I suppose LinkedIn does that to people, right? It does. And uh, you're someone who's easy to start following because you are dynamic. I know there's been several times I've seen your clips on LinkedIn or I listen to your podcast, The Influential Communicator. uh, And it's just a different energy, which is why I was excited to chat with you because podcasts are great for a host of different reasons. But if nothing else, if they're not entertaining, then you lose my interest. So you are someone who I think I speak for a lot of people when I say you uh, you capture people's interest pretty quickly. Thank you, brother. I receive that compliment with open arms, man. Thank you so much, dude. And when it comes to your story, what I would love to know, and I suppose the audience probably would as well, is is what's one story from your past that you believe the audience need to know in order to understand the individual deeply that is the guest on the show today? Oh, I did not uh, anticipate that being the first question. Let me think about that for a second. Yeah, man, take your time. I'll tell you what, this is a simple story, but I think it highlights a lot of the way I just approach my career and how I approach leading teams in general. So picture this, it's 2005. I'm in the Middle East and it's nighttime probably midnight. So a lot of people don't know this, but it gets 
gets pretty cold, gets pretty dark in a desert. <laughs> There's not a lot of ambient lights. Uh, and I'm sitting in what is essentially a, a bomb shelter, and you've got B-1 bombers taking off the runway. If you've ever been around a B-1 bomber, those are the loudest jets in the world. I mean, you feel it in your chest when those things are taking off. So I'm sitting in the desert, 17, 18 years old, uh, and I hear these B-1s taking off. And like, this is, this is my new reality for the next six months. And there's a lot of just chaos and hecticness as missions are getting ready to take off. But while the mission's happening, back on the base, it's, it's relatively calm and relatively peaceful. And so in the military, I quickly learned that you don't just sit around and wait, right? There's always something to be done. Uh, now you're going to laugh at the simplicity of this story, but I vividly recall one day we were getting some water shipped in, some potable water that we could drink out of, or we could drink, I should say. And after they dropped it off, they had us early uh, sailors, our E1s and E2s, right? We had to move the pallets of water seemingly aimlessly from one part of the bomb shelter to the other. And I remember asking my chief at the time, I'm like, hey, why are we doing this? It seems like a waste of time. He's like, that's just the way we've always done it. And it was a phrase that I have always remembered. It's the way we've always done it. It was this moment to my head, like, well, what does that mean? Is it the right way? Like, does it make sense? Has anyone ever stopped to question why we do these things? And so that moment of like people being very comfortable with the way things have always been done with the status quo didn't sit well with me. And so I've kind of <laughs> unintentionally from that moment, always seek to challenge the status quo to push myself outside of what's common or recognizable and try to get a little bit uncomfortable. So I know that seems like a big leap, but it's just this moment that I'll never forget. And it's partly why, as you mentioned at the beginning of this, my background says the ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships are built for. Dude, have you shared that on stage before? Because that's a that's a dope story, man. Really, that that should definitely be in one of your keynotes or presentations, man. That's dope. I love it. I love it. So, dude, how much money? The question is, how much money did your son end up raising for his readathon? Right? Because I saw this really cool picture on LinkedIn of him basically knocking on doors trying to raise money, and you had even hit him with a spiff. So I want to know what that was in the end. But did he did he hit his target? He did. So we set out on a goal to raise a hundred dollars. Uh, and so for context, he's doing a readathon for his school. Money raised goes towards technology in the classroom. So when he came home and asked me if I could help him go do this, I mean, that's, you know, I, I'm in sales for a living. I was like, this is my dream come true, an opportunity to teach my son how to go door to door and raise money for a good cause. So set a goal of 100. I told him if we doubled that uh, $200, then the spiff would be dinner wherever he wants to go, right? So after about 20 houses, I thought he'd be tired, worn out. Uh, he wanted to keep going and keep pressing. So we eclipsed 200. He said, hey, dad, what happens if we double this? And I said, if you get to 400, then I'll buy you tickets to the, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe play at your, uh, at your school. And so his eyes light up. He's like, all right, let's go. And so we spent probably four or five hours after school one day doing this. And he ended up raising $450. So I got to take him to uh, the play this Friday, actually. Dude, how cool is that? I didn't read that in your LinkedIn post. I didn't see that. But that's incredible, man. Wow. Was there... Okay, now I want to know, was there one line or something that he said where you were like, hold up, dude, where did you learn that? Like, were you, was there one super proud dad moment that you had? I'll say this, when we were writing our script and doing a little bit of, I call it role play, but we were practicing, right? 
after he went through his quick pitch, uh, instead of saying, would you like to donate a dollar? He just said, why don't we just say, would you like to donate and see what they offer? Now, keep in mind, he's six. So that was, you know, keeping it open ended and not putting a ceiling on it. I was like, wow, all right, you've maybe you've got the uh, the pedigree to do this already. That's so good, man. Hold on. Did he think of that or did you? Yes, he thought of that. I promise you. Oh, my, man. I think you've got a little account exec on your hands. You got an AE right there, bro. Hopefully. You got you got an AE right there, man. So tell me this, you know, being a dad to young boys, but also your new role over at Dandy for the past six months, man. How has it been over the past six months? Because now you're past the honeymoon period. You're scaling the team aggressively. How have you found the process of trying to make a name for yourself in a new business, as well as keeping the balance between all the things that keep you whole at home? When anytime you join a new organization, right, the, the first goal, the first priority is to build trust. And the only way you're going to build trust is if you learn the job that you're going to be empowering. So making cold calls with the, the SDR team, going and doing drops and calls with the field days, going to all the different team meetings, calling the prospects. Before I joined Dandy, I went and spoke to no less than 10 dentists in my area to understand if I gave them that pitch, would it resonate? Is this actually a problem worth solving or is this just a nice to have? So if you do a lot of research and intimately understand each role you're going to be responsible for, that to me is probably the quickest and most fundamental way to build trust with the team. And then after you've done that, right, then you have to lay out the vision the why behind the vision. And the most important part is go and do the thing. If you don't follow up with what you say you're going to do, then you're not going to gain any trust. So that that was my my goal and my approach from the beginning. And then I've always blocked time on my calendar, right? Like, so 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. at my, my local time is just a hard no-go for me. That's That's family time. So it's got to be a, you know, a, a stage four alarm uh, if you're going to be having me meet with you between those hours. Otherwise, I'll pick up when the kids are asleep or first thing early the next morning. So as long as I block my calendar and prioritize my priorities, as they say, then, then I've never had too much of an issue. That's awesome, man. I love that, bro. And I bet the kids will remember that, right? Because, you know, I can't remember who said it actually, but something along the lines of your kids don't care about your bank balance, man. They care about the time that you spend with them. But the truth is, is everything needs money, but money isn't everything. So it's this, it's a little dance you got to play, you know what I mean? As a, as a new dad, which I'm finding out. But tell me this, you spoke about being congruent, with your message. Now, for those that don't know about Dandy, what problem do you solve? What is your message? Just for context. The best way to think about Dandy is we are an organization that is capable of bringing the digital revolution to dental practices. There's a giant shift happening in dentistry where there's still a lot of practitioners and doctors out there who are operating I'll call it the old school way, right? Everything's analog. Everything's manual. It's the the ship is safe in harbor mentality. But you can go digital in dentistry. You can leverage technology to not only help you make a better patient experience, but to make your practice more efficient and effective as well. And so that's what we're bringing. We're bringing the digital revolution to dentists. And it's something that I think is is probably well overdue. So it's it's an exciting mission that I'm, I'm proud to be a part of. 
Dude, I thought my current dentist was revolutionary when they sent like an email confirmation for something. I was like, what? What? <laughs> like, these guys are legit, man. So I know what you mean. It's one of those industries where I feel like, well, actually, better to hear from you. Do you feel like they just want to hold on to the past and the old school way of doing things? Or do you actually think there's a knowledge gap? I don't think it's a knowledge gap. I think it's it's fear of the unknown. It's fear of change. I mean, not to keep tying it all back to this, this quote I had on the back of my LinkedIn page, but I mean, it's a lot of people, if something's working, right, it's this concept of inertia. It's like, it's, it's really hard to change that. If it's, if it's working and I don't feel like I have a big problem, then why take the risk of change? And so our job is to show them what they stand to gain if they do. And over time, if they fail to change, like what's, what's going to happen in the world around them. So uh, I don't think it's a knowledge gap. I think it's truly just inertia in the status quo. That's interesting, brother. So do you find that your reps have to use a lot of storytelling to educate on that problem and illuminate the villain? Because they probably, you know, if you said, hey, we do this, they're going to be like, yeah, I don't have that problem. <laughs> they don't know how big the problem is and they probably don't even know if it exists. Yeah, it's, it's a combination of that and our go-to-market motion. I mean, the thing I love about SMB sales, different than enterprise, right, is more often than not, it's a it's like a low evaluation type process. There's you don't have 17 different decision makers and stakeholders, and you don't have a six-figure contract that you're trying to finagle through finance. You've got one or two people who, if you can resonate with and build confidence with, they're able to make that that decision. And so as long as you're able to reduce the friction of the buying process, then to me, that's that's half the battle. So the way we go to the doctors and meet them in the office, the way that we provide technology to them and remove some of that financial risk, it just makes it a lot easier to actually hear us out and be open to the change. I hear you, brother. I used to sell into, in a previous life, I had my team selling into the SMB market for UK travel agents. So we would actually go and visit their travel agency across different parts of London. And man, it was so old school, but that business was rooted in certain family values. They'd done one thing this way for the past 30 years and they had their family in the business and it was fruitful. It was full of energy, but there was so much resistance to changing the status quo because they had they have quite a lot to lose, right? Reputational risk, finances, loads of stuff. So I feel you on that, man. That's interesting. And I suppose if somebody's listening to this right now, they're like, man, I kind of like this Kyle guy. He's got a bit of swag. I want to see if they've got any roles over at Dandy and they're trying to break into a company like yours. What do they need to do, Kyle? Because you spoke in a post six months ago on LinkedIn about five key attributes that you look for, right? Before hiring a sales pro. And I want to dig deeper into that because the state of the market is pretty tough. There's a lot of sellers trying to look for the right role. And there's a lot of sales leaders like yourself trying to look for the right seller. So what do you look for, man? What are those five key attributes? What's the first one? Let's dig deep. Let me start maybe by saying what the five are, and then I'll, I'll dive into each of them. So the first one for me is ownership mentality. Second one is coachability. Third one is going to be high EQ. Fourth one is work ethic. And the fifth one is collaborative or collaboration. So those to me are the five things that I'm looking for. And what you'll notice, maybe what I'll call out is what's not mentioned. What's not mentioned is 10 plus years in 
enterprise or five plus years in this specific vertical or industry. That to me, I'm less concerned about. If you have these five attributes, then you are someone who I can help with my team of leaders and enablement specialists. We can teach you dentistry or whatever particular field you're in. I can teach you SMB versus mid-market enterprise, which while they're different, they're not night and day, right? I think a lot of times we pretend as if enterprise is this entirely different world. There are definitely nuances, but it's not that different. So I'm not focused on that. I'm focused on, do you have these five attributes as a human being? And if you do, then like that's the recipe for success, in my opinion. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Let's, let's, uh, let's dig deep from the top then. So when we talk about ownership mentality, I think one of the worst things is, is if I came into your office and I said, Carl, I've got ownership mentality. You know what I'm saying? I own my stuff. Trust me, brother. Trust me. It's like, yeah, okay. Why don't you show me? So how can a seller effectively show they have ownership mentality without saying the word ownership? Yeah. So the way that they're going to show me this is how they answer my question. What is the most difficult thing that has happened to you professionally? And what did you do about it? That's those, I don't know how many words that is, right? 10 words. Those are the 10 words I ask them. And then I just shut up and listen. That's the question I ask. And that's their opportunity to demonstrate to me a time when something happened to them and they had basically a fork in the road, right? They could continue to say, hey, life is happening to me or the other fork is life happens through me. And for the people who show that life happens through them, typically in their answer, there's something around, this was the challenge, here's the action I took and the result because of it and any associated learnings that I have applied in my day-to-day moving forward. So that's that's the question I specifically asked to suss out ownership mentality. Cut, pause, or whatever we need to say for me to get your attention. Because before we get back to the show, I have some breaking news. Okay, listen, ladies and gents, feature selling is dead and story selling is alive. Because if you really want to build trust, stand out and close more deals in a recession, then you need to try something new so you can drive your company to a world of efficiency and profitability. And that's exactly why I've opened up many slots this year for different companies to partner with me for implementing my story selling framework inside of their sales process. Now, the outcomes are all the good stuff. I'm talking about increasing average order value, collapsing time inside of your sales cycle and driving win rates. But more importantly, transforming your team to sell in a way that really focuses on human connection. And hey, that's what I'm all about. So if you're nodding your head right now, then head on down to www.therabbyrajani.com forward slash contact to book your complimentary discovery call to see if there's alignment. And hey, if there is, great. If there's not, that's cool too. I'll see you on the other side. You know what the worst thing is, Carl, is when somebody says, so buddy, um, you know, what's your biggest flaw? And then the person goes, you know what? I'm just a perfectionist. It's crazy. I'm just a perfectionist. It's like, well, okay, hold up. So if somebody hits you with a BS response like that to your question, 
how do you go deeper? Like what's your go-to if you're feeling an air of, yeah, I'm not feeling you. That's corporate jargon. I mean, just put it this way. I will call them on that. So here's, it's happened before. And this is typically how I respond. Listen, sales is hard as hell. You are going to get rejected. You're going to have up quarters and down quarters. You're going to have new product launches and product failures. You're going to have customer success drop the ball. A million things are going to go wrong. And I need to know that you can persevere through what is inevitably going to be a shitty week or month or what have you. And if the hardest thing that's ever happened to you is this soft story you ever told me, or if your biggest flaw is this artificial thing you just shared, I have concerns that you've yet to really face a lot of headwinds in your career. And while I'm not going to necessarily hold that against you, I want to give you one more chance to tell me about something that was even harder than that. So I'm an open book, Ravi. I'll tell them that. Like I'm actually looking for some real hard, you know, stories here. And if they fail to give me one, like again, I'm not, all right, interview's over, get out of here. But it's it's a notch a little bit, right? They're either being disingenuous or they truly have never faced anything challenging, which means I'm gonna be the first one who has to see and learn and figure out how they react when inevitably something goes sideways in their sales career. You know what's really funny? is um, what came up for me as you were talking was the idea that life isn't linear. So our story shouldn't be either. But I think in that moment, somebody might feel like, man, I need to impress Kyle. So I need to come up with something that's vulnerable, but not too vulnerable where it paints me in a bad light. But as Kyle said, it's not about the mistake or headwind. It's about the mindset of this is happening through me versus to me and enabling, uh, well, actually seeing a transformation on the back end, like seeing how you overcame it. And I actually think the bigger the mess up, the more desirable you'll be in somebody like Kyle's eyes, because there's a famous quote by Robin Roberts called, make your mess your message. And that's where I think it's powerful, where you have these mess ups and you're like, hold up, this is a story. Like this is a story which is going to help me connect with somebody. So I don't know. Anything come up for you when I was just talking there, Carl? I, well, I agree, right? And there's another saying: people buy from those that they trust and those that they relate to. And so when you're selling whatever your solution is, if you have these stories that you can share with your buyer, and you don't know what's going to resonate and what doesn't, you're going to build so much more trust and rapport with that person. So rather than try to be some fake robot that nobody is, including the buyers you're selling to, just be real and honest about it. I love it, man. It's like delivering a keynote or a presentation where you've got the opportunity in the first few minutes to be seen as a human being so people can really buy into you. And this is exactly that, right? This is a presentation to somebody like yourself. And how can you position yourself as a human versus, I don't know, just another seller? So I like it, man. Ownership mentality, ownership mentality. So the second one was coach ability. Now, I can almost guarantee you can ask any rep on the face of this earth and they're going to say, I'm coachable, man. I am coachable. So is there an exercise that you walk them through to really test this? Like, well, what do you do to actually quantify that or qualify that rather? Yeah. So I asked them, when was the last time that you received feedback? And without fail, it's my last semi-annual performance review. And I say, okay, when was the last time you received feedback prior to that? And I keep going two or three times and I'm looking for them to say, the last time I received feedback, is when I asked my manager X, or I walked into my director's office and had them teach me Y. Coachability, 
Yes, it can mean when someone gives you feedback, are you open to it and do you implement it? And I do screen for that here in a second. I'll share that. But I'm also looking for people who proactively seek out feedback. Very few people who say they're open to feedback when they feel like they could be doing better will proactively, speaking about going out of your comfort zone, bring that to their leader and say, hey, I did this particular thing on this call. I don't think it went well. Can you help me get better at this? That's something I just don't see very often, but it just happened on interviews where someone says, actually, it just happened yesterday. I walked into the office. I totally blew a demo and I asked my VP if he or she could sit down next to me and and let me do a role play with them. That to me is a huge advantage over any other candidate when I hear someone proactively seeking out feedback. That's the first thing I'm looking for. Dude, I'm curious, right? So if somebody blew an interview with you, right? And you're like, eh, eh, but then afterwards they emailed you and said, Carl, listen, man, I know that I messed that interview up, but I'm really curious to know if there were three things I could have done to make it a success in your eyes, what would that have been? Would that make you go, hold on, come back, come back in for round two. Like, would that shift your opinion? It would, but here's, here's why that hasn't happened yet. Every time someone gets to an interview, with me, I'm typically the second or third, you know, final round. If we don't proceed with that candidate, I'm scheduling time with them to give them feedback face to face. Anyone who's made it that far has put that much time in. I'm setting up time and doing exactly what you just said, which is, hey, here are all the things that I loved about your interview. Here were the gaps that just for me were enough to tilt the scale the other direction. And here's what I think better would sound like. And I've done this, I don't know, probably a hundred times now, if not more. And every time it resonates with that candidate, because my hope is just because they didn't start with me and my team doesn't mean they can't then go rock their very next interview. That's awesome, man. I don't know many leaders that would do that. And I think the cool thing is, is it probably makes them want to work with you more. Isn't They're probably even more gutted. They're like, hold on, you know, this is, this is incredible because I, I'm a big believer of what you see in a friendship, in a relationship, during mentorship from day zero is most likely the way that relationship will continue, man. It's like a first date, right? The, the very thing that was a red flag is probably the very thing that will break you later on. So I love it, man. I love it. So tell me this, when it comes to coachability as well, have you ever had a scenario where in an interview, you've had to break the pattern of the interview, give some feedback, and then they've actually implemented it in the interview? Not in the middle of it, but at the end. So here's typically what will happen. At the end of the interview, if this is for an AE role, I will say, listen, I don't know anything about your solution, right? And now maybe sometimes that's true. I I genuinely don't know anything about the company they're at. Sometimes it could be a, a much larger company. We'll use Gong as an example or Salesforce. I clearly know what those companies do, but I say, Pretend that I'm this persona, and I I switch it up uh, depending on where I'm at and who they'll be selling to, but pretend I'm this persona. You've got 30 seconds. Help me understand why I should buy Gong or Salesforce. And I want to see what their pitch sounds like. And there's been many that are good, a couple that are great, and a few that are not as impressive. And for those that are not as impressive, I will give them feedback like, hey, I don't feel like after those 30 seconds, I have any idea what your company does. Maybe try, and then I'll give them whatever the feedback is. Try it again. And every candidate's open to doing it. And it's, it's great to see. I've yet to have one like blow up or like, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. 
something like that, right? So it's a fun little exercise, but I wouldn't say it happens every single time. It's cool, man. It's good to know. It's good to know. Let's um, let's head on, that, head on down rather to number three, which is high EQ. Once again, I sometimes feel like this is one of those things you can intuitively feel and pick up on. What are some triggers or signals that you look for so you can have the following thought, man, this human being has got high EQ. Yeah. So here's the tricky thing, right? All of these are somewhat subjective. Some you can get a little bit more color on and gar- like coachability, right? Tell me about a time you did this or ownership. Tell me about a time you did that. With EQ, all I can go on is how they're acting in that interview. And when I say EQ, that's that's a big statement. What I'm specifically looking for is can this person read the room? Are they able to not only listen to what's being said, but listen to what's not being said? Are they able to pick up on my nonverbal communication? Because in sales, right, you can have the highest IQ in the world, but if you're not able to read the room, you're going to miss a lot of opportunities, especially in the discovery and demo phase to dive deeper. And almost always the gold that helps you win that deal is three or four layers down. So if you miss your opportunity to dive down, then you're going to miss the deal more often than you should. So the way in which I try to suss this out in my interview is when I ask them at the beginning to tell me about themselves, I'll pose the question like this, Ravi. I'll say, listen, everyone's life is a book. We have a ton of different chapters. I don't have time to read the entire book. So I want you to tell me two or three chapters that you think highlight what is most important for me to understand about you as a sales professional. And then I'll let them go. And if they're really clear and concise and compelling, then fantastic. But sometimes people drag on a little bit too too long and I'll start to look disinterested. I'll lean back. I'll start looking at other screens. And I want to see if they quickly pick up on that or if they continue their monologue for another three or four minutes. So that's that's one of the ways in which I'm looking for someone's EQ and ability to, to read their room and the personalities in which they're communicating. With. Has anybody ever said, what about you, Carl? What's one chapter that you would say defined you? Has anybody ever asked you that back? Not until this morning when you asked me about a story <laughs> that changed. <laughs> Man, I sometimes feel that people miss on that in interviews because I really feel like there's this well, the fight or flight response can kick in, right? But more importantly, I feel like there's this feeling that somebody might have, which is, oh my gosh, I'm speaking to Kyle. Who am I to ask him a question because I am the interviewee? And I really think it's a two-way conversation, man. So what I'd love to know is if there's one question a rep could ask you that you wish they would in interviews, what is that one question? You know, Ravi, I don't know if I have like that golden question. What I'm looking for when someone asks me questions, which is typically at the end, although to your point, if they found a tactful way to circle back on me, like that's a huge plus, right? Like naturally you're trying to let the interviewer do the interviewing. But as an AE, if we're using that scenario, if you can tactfully loop around and be like, hey, tell me how you think about that. That's fantastic. But the questions I'm looking for more at the end is like, did that AE do their research? Do they know about our buyer? Do they know about our competitive landscape? So if their questions aren't the usual like, hey, so what are you looking for? Or hey, is there any reason why you wouldn't proceed? Or hey, tell me about the, the day-to-day. Those are questions I'm just assuming I'm going to get. 
But if you say, hey, Kyle, I just called 10 dental practices before my interview with you, and I got this objection six out of the 10 times, how does your team handle that? That would blow my mind, right? And that's the type of question, that's the type of research I'm expecting an AE to do if they really want to stand out from the crowd. Dude, that's epic. That is actually epic. So you heard it here first, people. If you go on an interview with Kyle, ring up 10 SMB clients, those who fit the ICP. And man, do a mini presentation. Hit them up with the top objections. That, that, that's dope, man. That's dope. Now, uh, let's move on to work ethic, which is, oh, I mean, it's one of those things where I think somebody saying, I don't work hard. It's just like, you're never going to hear that, right? So I suppose the question is, is how do you define if somebody's a hard worker, but also how do you extract the idea as to if they're working on the right things or if they're just being busy fools? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, you nailed it, right? It's, there's, you can work hard and be busy, but not productive, which is the recipe for burnout and lack of impact, which is a disaster because now you're trying really hard and you're frustrated because you're not getting the results. So when I think of work ethic, yes, part of it could be demonstrated by, for example, the question we just talked about. How much preparation did you put into this interview or did you show up and ask me the same questions you did the other 10 VPs of sales you spoke to this week? So you can start to demonstrate that in how you show up for an interview. But what I typically do ask is tell me about the top three things you're focused on right now and why. So that already starts to help me understand, are they intentional about how they spend their time and their energy? So tell me your top three. And then once inevitably they do that, I say, what are the three things you are not prioritizing, but are still important? I want to know if they can actually make the hard choice and consciously not do something. And so I, I start to delineate right then and there. And then for the things that they are focusing on, typically I say, well, then what steps are you taking to make sure you can accomplish that task, right? And if someone can clearly articulate all of that in a way that to me makes a ton of sense, like I'm already starting to realize this person probably gets up on either early Monday morning or maybe finds an hour on Sunday to prioritize their week. At the end of the day, when they're exhausted before they close their computer, do they go to their list of three big rocks and make sure they've checked those three off before they've done any little rock activities? That's in a nutshell, essentially what I'm trying to trying to look for there. I love it, brother. I love the idea of the three rocks, right? Because the truth is, is context switching is a killer, right? It's a killer. I have to really pull myself up on it. And I think it's really good to have those three things that you want to nail every single day. I love it, man. I love it. So the final one of collaborative, I think is really interesting because sometimes you can get a version of somebody in an interview and then you'll see them in the organization, for example, an AE, and you'll see the way they treat an SDR in their pod or a solutions engineer inside of their core. And you're like, hmm, wow, I wish I'd seen that beforehand. So what character traits are you looking for to really, inside of the interview, to really decipher if this person is collaborative or not? First thing is I'm trying to keep track of how often I'm hearing I or me versus we or Aha. the team, right? They're, they're like, even just the unconscious way in which you use those words hey, I did this, I did that, it's me, me, me all the time. Already, right, somewhat of a red flag. I get it, I'm interviewing you, so I wanna know what you are doing. 
But if I'm interviewing for my role and they say, hey, Kyle, tell me about a time when you built a sales program from whatever, 20 million to 50 million. I'm going to talk about not just what the sales team did, but we worked with marketing and refined our ICP. We worked with customer success to ensure that our implementation rate had a 98% CSAT or better. We collaborated with EPD to make sure there's a tight feedback loop on what would need to be true in our solution if we're truly going to go up market. So there's an opportunity, no matter what role you're interviewing for, to weave in how you're working as a team. So that's, that's one thing that I'm particularly looking for. And if it's an AE, and we'll just stick with that example, absolutely. I'm going to say, how do you currently work with an SDR if, if they have an SDR program? If they don't and they're purely inbound, then how do you work with marketing? How do you guys create a feedback loop so they know what content's working and what isn't? What channel's successful and, and which ones aren't? So it is a lot of questions around how do you work with X person at your company or your team? It's very interesting, man. It's very, very interesting because I feel like collaborative, I think that's a make or break actually, man. Because I, I, if I've got a top rep who's performing, but they're not collaborative and they're just all about themselves, that's a recipe for disaster. And I think what you said there is incredible about the language, about switching it from I to we tells you everything about another human being, right? It's like when somebody says, oh, I hired them or my client versus when we partnered with them. I don't know why that's a stickler for me. I'm like, ah, I love the idea of a partnership versus one is higher or lower than the other. I love it, man. And to, to wrap up here, brother, confidence is probably quite low in many people right now. They've got a lot of things going on personally and the noise in the market professionally is just deafening. So what is one thing you think somebody can do before they get into an interview to cultivate that energy and confidence, which is just magnetizing? I'll give you two, actually. So one I've already shared. So will you that's, okay. go call the prospect you would be if you were in the role. Go talk to them, right? Mm. And figure out, what their day-to-day looks like, what their problems are, current state versus ideal future state. You can find, if unless you're working, unless you're interviewing for a really, really small company, my bet is you can go to their website, maybe find some YouTube videos and figure out what is that company that you're applying to? What is their value prop? Who are they going after? And then go test it. And if you crash and burn because you haven't been enabled on it, who cares, right? You're not actually held to a quota right now. So go shop with the future prospect and bring those learnings back to your interviewer. Here are the top 10 objections I got. Here was what they said had to be true. Here it looks, it looks like there's a lot of greenfield or is this a big rip and replace play, right? Show you've done your homework. The second thing that I would do is I would actually secret shop the company that you're interviewing for. So I do this all of the time when I'm looking at the, the next opportunity. I call in the phone number on the website. I go through the demo flow. I see what emails come in once I'm put on that marketing campaign. I talk to the SDR and see what kind of qualification questions are asking me. What does the handoff to the AE look like? Are they feature functionality dumping or are they doing some discovery? All the things I am trying to do before I even ever meet with the CEO of that company so I can come to him or her and say, did you know that when a prospect comes in, they schedule a 30-minute demo on your website? That's fantastic. And I got a email reminder 60 minutes before, big plus. However, when the AE got on the phone, 
they said, we need to have these two other people with you and we need 60 minutes. So all we did was find time to schedule another meeting. That is a terrible experience. You're making me book 30, but you need 60. You need two other people there, but you're not saying that anywhere in the communication. Mr. and Mrs. CEO, I highly recommend you make some of these small tweaks and I guarantee you your inbound conversion rate is going to go up 10 points, right? That's the type of work you need to do to stand out from these hundreds of other applicants who all want the same job you do. That's gold, brother, especially that second one, because you're also showcasing your expertise. So it sounds as though what I'm hearing is, is don't focus on confidence per se, focus on competence so you can display confidence in the room to people like yourself. So I love it, man. And yeah, dude, confidence, listen, confidence without competence is just arrogance and no one wants that. Yeah. So make sure you are competent and with the competence inevitably comes the confidence. So that's the, there is a sequence of events that has to be true there in order for this to actually work in your favor. Yeah, preach, my man, preach. You definitely don't want to breach the border of arrogance or the the line of arrogance. You know, confidence and arrogance, they can often be two sides of the same coin. So you got to watch it, people. you got to watch it. So, Carl, listen, before we finish up here, brother, influential communicators. As you know, the show is called The Influential Communicator. So who's somebody that you look up to, that you really absorb everything they say because you learn a lot from because they are an influential communicator? Influential communication to me means you are clear, you are concise, and you are compelling. And when I think of somebody who embodies those three things as a communicator, I do think of President Barack Obama. I thought he was an incredibly clear, concise and compelling communicator. So he's someone who I've looked to as a model of how to capture an audience's attention and leave them with a message that they won't forget. There's nothing better than another human who can communicate in a concise way. I think that's a lost art. I really think that's a lost art, man. So listen, brother, you're a busy sales leader and I appreciate you kicking it with me for 40 minutes. And dude, if people want to learn more about what you're up to over at Dandy, where should they head on down? Go to uh, either meetdandy.com for the company. And for myself, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's Kyle Peterson. Beautiful, beautiful. And ladies and gents, if you enjoyed today's episode, here's exactly what I'd like you to do. Okay, I'd love for you to take a screenshot of you listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever and write a post on LinkedIn about the number one takeaway you took away from today's episode. Tag Kyle, tag myself, and I guarantee we will come back to you, all right? Next week, same time, same place. I'll see you soon, people. Peace. I have a question for you, my friend. And that question is, is what would it take to have you subscribe to the Influential Communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice because i tell you what my friend my big mission is to help b2b sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without without suppressing their personality and disowning their value so hey the more the word gets out about this podcast the more people we can gather on this mission so if you could support me then hey that would be dope. And if not, that's dope too. Either way, I got love for you. All right. I'll see you on the other side.